In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we encounter the reality that the gospel story has the power to transform every single aspect of our story. And that's exactly what we were made for. This is Ephesians, and we're Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Listen, at the New York Public Library, there's this thing called the uh, Hunt Linux Globe. I think we have like a, a screenshot of, of that. Over in uh, southeastern Asia, there's an inscription that translates, Here be dragons, right? And what that means is uh, a little bit uncharted territory, or this expression has come to mean uh, these are dangerous. This is a dangerous place to go. Okay, here be dragons. It's uh, not necessarily present on a whole lot of other maps, although the the phrase has become associated with you're going into a place that's dangerous or a place that's that's uncharted. These are not uncharted territories, but they are dangerous territories. Over the next two weeks, we're going to encounter phrases like the husband is the head of the wife. Here be dragons, right? You think you're sweating. Think how, I mean, I don't sweat. I'm sweating. You're going to see the phrase wives should submit everything and everything to their husbands. Here be dragons. And then next week, and the ESV is going to help us out just a little bit because it's translated the word slave to bond servants. We'll get into that next week. I don't want to spoil anything. It's going to say in some translations, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. Here be dragons. Listen, we stand on this book unequivocally. Okay? But we also have to acknowledge on a Sunday like this that those phrases, those Words have been leveraged by people, people who call themselves Christians, people within the church for abuse, for power grabs, for control, for harming other people. Because if we don't take ownership of that, if we don't see the abuse of those phrases, then we are bound ourselves to repeat them. But at the same time, I would propose today that our answer is not to skip those passages. Our answer isn't to pretend like those passages don't exist. To just kind of write them off and forget about them. One of the reasons we preach through the Bible verse by verse is because it keeps me on a week like this where I've prayed more about a sermon than I have in a long, long time, where I've paced the house back And fourth, where I've gone to my wife and said, if I say it this way, how does it feel? If I say it this way, how does it feel? If I say it this way, how does it feel? It'd be a whole lot easier for me to just skip it. By preaching through the Bible verse by verse, we have to to confront these passages. And I would say today, might we hear what God has to say to us here? Instead of erasing passages like this, might we embrace passages like this, but as God defines them? Not as the world defines them or even as uh, certain people among the church might define them, but as God defines them. Because we're going to go into some specific relationships coming up in the next couple weeks. He's going to talk to kids and parents. He's going to talk to husbands and wives. He's going to talk to bond servants and masters real specifically. And today he starts with, with marriage. 
But there's good news that we can all get on board for, and it's really the main teaching of this passage. The main teaching of this passage isn't marital advice, although we'll get some today. The main teaching of this passage is that the primary meaning of marriage is the mysterious way, mysterious way that it is supposed to make Jesus and his bride look beautiful to the world. I believe we all can get on board for that. Jesus looking beautiful to the world. Jesus' love for his bride looking beautiful to the world and marriage in a mysterious way shows us that. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm so inadequate. I 100% am. I'm not even always a good husband. I'm certainly not always a good preacher. I pray that today, if I get anything wrong, you'd keep it from falling on your people's hearts today. That only the things that by your grace I get right today will be the ones that stick with people. The Holy Spirit will move in this place for all of us, showing us the truth. No one here will be under the assumption that if it comes out of my mouth, it's true, but instead we'll search the Scriptures We'll trust your Holy Spirit to reveal to them truth. And in that, you'll save us from any mistakes I may or may not be about to make. Pray that no one will leave here using any of these words for selfish goals or ambitions, but but instead to, to see Jesus look beautiful. So what we know not today, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A couple of things I want to clear up before we dive into this. Three things in particular I want to say. First, these verses come in the context of all Scripture that matters. When we hear of Jesus as a gentle and lowly Savior, that applies to us being called to act like Jesus. When we see the great commandment, you will love your neighbor as you love your... You will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. These verses don't come in some vacuum that excludes people from having to live by that. When you look at all the one another's in Scripture, like love one another, lay your life down for one another, serve one another, help one another, be patient with one another. However you translate these verses can't contradict with any of that. That fact in and of itself should save us from toxic misogyny, right? Like like those verses, that point alone, that, that these come in the context of all Scripture should save us from all the pitfalls that have come out of these verses in the past. These come in the context of all Scripture. There's not some vacuum. You don't get away with interpreting these verses in some way that's selfish because selfishness is restricted by the Word of God. You don't get to translate these words in some way that's not gentle and lowly because that's in Scripture. You don't get to translate these words in some way that's not love others as you love yourself. You can't. Because it comes in the context of all Scripture. Number two, disconnect yourself from the way that society or you might interpret words like headship or submission. And let's find out how God defines those terms. Because if you don't disconnect yourself from how you want to define them, or even maybe how some uh, good intention but uh, wrong interpreting pastors use these terms in the past. 
right? Like disconnect yourself from how society defines them. Disconnect yourself from how you maybe from your own experiences define them. And let's let God define these terms for us today. If you don't, then you'll read these in some unhelpful, dangerous ways. People have in the past. And then lastly, single folks, hear me say this. Marriage is not the only place that people are able to glorify God and make Jesus look beautiful. That's foolishness. In fact, there's other passages in the Bible that talk about how you can leverage singleness for the good of the kingdom. Just today we're talking about marriage, right? And primarily we're talking about Jesus' marriage to the bride. So there's something here for you as well. But I also acknowledge that as a pastor who's and actually grown up in church my whole life, that in certain church settings, single people are made to feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom. Maybe if you're single, you've had that experience before. It's not intentional normally, but it can happen the way the, the church plays itself out. The beauty of being part of a church plant, I know this is a really long introduction, but the beauty of being part of a church plant is that you get to help shape the culture from the beginning. And you have a pastor right now and myself and in Josh Early who would love to hear your concerns about how single people exercise their gifts in the kingdom and you can't hurt my feelings. I'd love to talk about it. Because we want to be a place where all members of the body feel valued and seen and, and important to the kingdom. Equal to the kingdom. But most of all, what comes away from this about your marriage to Christ is, is of great value. So, so listen in as we, as we go. Here, and here we go. Put your hard hats on. Verse 22 through 24. If you have an outline, the, these verses are, what's up, wives? That's what this, these three verses are. What's up, wives? And then we'll have, what's up, husbands? And then at the end, and what's most important is you're going to see that Jesus is what's up, right? That's going to be our final point. Wives, here's what's up. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Disconnect yourself from your understandings of those words. We're going to encounter the headship first and submission second. I went and read, I went and read uh, a female scholar first. That was my first step. Her name is uh, Lynn Kohick. She actually oversees all of our academic affairs at Northern Seminary in Illinois. I try that with every sermon series we do through a book of the Bible to find a commentary written by someone from a minority community and, and one written by a woman because if you just read just the white men, you, you're going to miss some things, right? You need perspective of multiple people. So I went to see what she had to say about it. And she actually has done a lot of work on this term head that comes from the, the Greek word uh, kephale. Intensive study. And she says in, the, in Greek writings and in Greek society, there's kind of four ways that this word gets applied in the culture. I think it's important that we see that. The, and, and, and in the Bible in particular, that it gets applied scripturally. 
The first is the most rare, actually. It's the way that we tend to to kind of misdefine the word, that the head of something is this disconnected leader who sits high up and bosses everybody around, right? That they're superior to the other parties involved, that they get to issue orders and edicts, and everyone obeys their command from a place of lesser importance. Every time that that this Greek word is used that way in Scripture, it's referring to Jesus compared to other gods. It's referring to Jesus in connection to other saviors. And in that sense, it's 100% biblically accurate because he is superior to all other gods. That's the claim of Scripture, at least. It's at least consistent with the book. It's what I believe. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. He is a superior savior. He is a superior God, disconnected from all of his enemies, superior to all of his enemies. That can't be what's meant here. The very analogy of of the husband and wife being one flesh rules that out. The husband isn't disconnected authority figure that just gets to boss the wife around. That's... It's not even close to what's meant here. Another way this word is, is used is, is like headwaters, like a source. That's a better analogy to think about. That from the headwaters of a stream flows all the goodness and water, you know, that, that comes. And Jesus is that to us, a source of goodness. And that in some ways, the husband is called to emulate that, to, to be a person that invests in his Marriage in such a way that goodness flows out of him for the marriage. Another way the word is used is is just as you would expect. Physiologically, the, the head is kind of the highest part of the body in that sense, right? Like it's kind of fairly prominent, right? The, you, we, we hide everything else really and, and there's the head. But it's not disconnected from the body. We'll get into this more here in a second. It's an important part of understanding what God means by headship. The head is not disconnected from the body. It's reciprocal with the rest of the body. It's together with the rest of the body. It's, it's complementary, uh, complementary to the rest of the body. They work together. And then the last way, and probably the most honest way to understand this term, is that there's actually with it connected, right, by God's definition, not man's definition, by God's good, loving, gentle, lowly, beautiful, kind, compassionate, there's actually some authority attached to the term. Not bossiness, not power or control, but the role of a husband in a marriage, the ordering of a marriage. Come back to this. Don't turn, turn it off yet. If that sounds antiquated to you, please continue to engage everything that's, that's to come. There is an honest sense where male leadership in a home is put forth by God as an ideal, not necessarily a hard, fast rule that always comes true, but as an ideal, right, through which he is made beautiful to the world, not by humanity's definition, but by, by his. We'll see in 25 through 31 what that what that looks like. The next word is the word submit. Wives should submit to their husbands. Let's start with what that's not. The Bible is made clear 
in a thousand other places what this can't possibly be. No matter how many preachers say it is something, it's not. And no matter how many people who attack this passage from the outside of Christianity say it's this, it's not. It can't be these things. It can't be inequality or inferiority. It can't. There's therefore now no Jew or Greek, male or female, bondsman or free in the kingdom of God. All are equal in their sin and in their need for a savior before God. All made in the image of God. Full equality. It can't mean inequality. It can't mean inferiority. It, it doesn't mean all men or all women submit to all men. That would stink, by the way. That ain't it. This is about marriage exclusively. This isn't some hierarchy for society that now all, all men have control of all women. That's foolishness. Can you imagine how quick, quick of a train wreck you'd have if that were the case? I mean, it would just be absolute misery. It can't be wholesale obedience because husbands aren't perfect. So it can't be that. It can't be that the husband's always right and you have to agree with him all the time and do whatever he says. Because what if he tells you to do something sinful? And, and the first thing that everyone goes to when they preach this is like some extreme example. Like what if he told you to murder somebody, right? As if that's the only way a husband can go out of line with, with Scripture. What if he subtly leads you in a way that causes you to not love your neighbor? What if he subtly leads you in a way that causes you to suffer under anxiety or guilt or shame that the Bible says you're liberated from? Think about it that way. You ain't got to obey that. It can't be true that you would be wholesale obedient to that or in wholesale agreement with a husband in that. It can't, can't mean that can't mean the silencing of the voice of the wife because everyone's voices come to the table in, in the church, right? So it can't be the silencing of the wife's voice. It, it can't be complete dependence on your husband like he's your only hope of survival or spirituality. The Bible very clearly says it can't be that. It's not coerced, right? Or some ultimatum. Like, you heard what Pastor Paul said, you got to submit to your wife, or submit to your husband. There you go, I see, Freudian slip. Yeah, you got to submit to your husband, so if you don't do that, right, I'm going to make your life a living hell. Stop. You go sleep on the couch, that's what you can do. Right. Can't possibly mean that. It's not exactly the same in every marriage. Like, it doesn't look exactly the same in every single marriage because people's personalities, right? Like, the skeletal realities of it are the same, but, but the way it plays out in my marriage versus your marriage won't be the same. It won't look the same in every marriage. And it, and it sure, certainly, and unequivocally ain't make me a sandwich. That's not what this is, right? There's this terrible meme that's got an, an astronaut, female astronaut, and it says, uh, the first female astronaut, because who else is going to make us sandwiches in space, right? <laughs> That's not what this is. Not even close. That's sin. Not the meme, whatever. If you can appreciate it as a funny joke, because it's so disconnected 
from what reality is to be, then go ahead and laugh at it. But that's not what this, this is. It can't be any of those things. And lastly, it's not just a female virtue either. Like women are the ones who have to submit and men are the ones who get to lead. That's foolishness too. It's a Christian virtue to submit. Okay, so, and there's probably more to that list of things that it isn't. But what is it? See something with me here. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Watch this play out because this should make you ponder something here. That Maybe God's defining terms differently than society is or you are. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, this is referring to God. I'm not going to get into all the context of this verse. Then the son himself will also be subjected to him. So Jesus will be subjected to God. If you know anything about the Trinity, that should already make you curious, right? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are completely equal in power, in authority, in godness, everything. But yet, Jesus is now subject to the Father? How can that be? And we try to bring our definitions to it and say, well, that must mean something else because that can't make any sense. And then the Holy Spirit follows the orders of Jesus and the Father, and he comes, and he gets the title helper. He comes to to be a helper. How degrading is that term for the Holy Spirit? I thought he was fully God. Well, obviously God must mean something else by it than what we think he means. God must have a different definition of what hierarchy looks like than what we think he does. What headship looks like than we think he does. Otherwise, the idea of headship would be within the Trinity would be heretical. It's got to mean something different about the ordering of a, a home, the ordering of the Trinity for human flourishing. Let me tell you a few things that submission is. I'm not going to tell any, I'm, I've been around long enough, I'm not going to tell any of you women specifically how to act. I don't, I don't get time for that. You men, you're out to get it here in a second. We'll talk. We're going to talk man to man. Generally speaking, though, it's voluntary. 100%. Submission to your husband is a voluntary act. It's creative. It's unique to each individual relationship. It's free thinking. That's what it, it has to be this. If the comparison is Jesus with the church and the comparison of headship is even found within the Trinity who are all equal in value and authority and worth, then it has to be something that is voluntary and beautiful and creative and unique and free thinking. It's even leadership for the wife too, right? Title doesn't equal leader. You, you've been around long enough to know that, right? Have you figured that one out yet? So because somebody has a title doesn't make them the leader, Okay. Right? We all lead together in a, in a marriage. It's, it's, there's co-leadership for sure. And it's secondary to Jesus. Know that. If submitting to your husband comes out of line with submitting to, to Jesus, then you can throw the husband part away. Right? You, not Don't throw him away, but you, can, you submit to Jesus. It, it's together. It's mutually beneficial. It's compl- complementary and reciprocal for the good of everyone, not for the power of the husband. It's for the good of everyone. It's for flourishing and beauty, right? Like the outs, people on the outside looking in at your marriage, like their first takeaway shouldn't be like, 
man, that husband really commands his home. He's got a lot of authority. That's their takeaway. You're doing it wrong. The takeaway should be their relationship is beautiful. They're both thriving. They're both growing. They're both developing. They're both winning together. That should be the takeaway. And then then lastly, and I'll I'll read a quote to kind of explain what I mean. More than actions, it's a disposition. It's a It's an inclination. It's a posture. John Piper says this about submission to the husband. It is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibilities for things and and lead with love. I, I don't flourish when you're passive. And I have to make sure the family works all by myself. But the attitude of Christian submission also says it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead, but I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. Submission is a posture, right? And, and it's also worship because it's not to your husband. He's not worthy of your submission, quite frankly. And he's certainly not worthy of your worship. But Jesus is. And in some way, and again, talk amongst yourselves, women. Figure this one out. I'm going to tell you what it looks like in your marriage. I, I, I've made that mistake in the past and I've hurt people. I've made a mess of this one before. But you have to not dismiss this idea as antiquated because it's right here. Instead, you have to figure out what God means by it. Instead, you have to figure out what does this look like in my marriage? And if you still think that that this is promoting male domination, please keep reading because now it's, it's what's up, husbands. We're going to talk man to man here. There's three things he's going to get after. The first is self-sacrifice. Here you go, husbands. You feeling like you're ready to kind of nudge your wife and tell her to kind of get her acting gear? Wait. Don't. Stop. Warning. (laughs) Red flag. Cease. Desist. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I myself and I've heard other pastors try to sum up this passage saying, wives submit and husbands lead. That's no. Wrong L word for the man, by the way. Husbands love. That's what the husband is called to. And if your headship doesn't look like love, obviously you're getting it wrong. If your headship doesn't look like love, you're getting it wrong. What's the standard? He laid his life down. For the church. You can call it leading if you want to. But biblically husbands. Leading is bleeding. Leading is giving up yourself. Your passions. Your preferences. Your desires. Even your 
hopes and dreams as necessary, your opinions, your control, your idols, for the sake of your wife. You want to race to the front of the line? It should be to take enemy fire, right? That's what it is. Because at the front of the line, you're not up there for flexing your muscles. You're up there to be wounded for the sake of your family, if necessary. You're up there to lay your life down in every possible way. You want to race for, uh, to grab something in your marriage? Make it the towel. The head of the church, the night before he dies, races for the towel to wash his disciples' feet. That's what headship looks like. Washing your wife's feet. Laying your life down. That's biblical headship. John Stott says this. If headship means power in any sense, then it's the power to care, not crush. It's the power to serve, not dominate. It's the power to facilitate self-fulfillment in your wife, not to frustrate it or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself, even to death and his relentless love for his bride. Headship is a daily death sentence for the husband, daily dying to self for the good of his wife. You own that, right? Ain't nobody going to be worried about terms like submission and headship. If you just bleed out for the people in your life, you bleed out for your wife. Secondly, he says you got to pastor your home, not just self-sacrifice, but pastor your home. He says, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In Jewish time, or in biblical times, a Jewish woman before her wedding She would take a ceremonial bath. It was symbolic of of all the impurity being washed away. She's going to present herself, right, to her husband, pure, without spot, undefiled. It's just just this ceremonial thing. Baptism is, is referred to in similar terms, too, that it marks our marriage to Christ, right? You know, like, your salvation is you being actually married to Christ. Like, you're you're becoming the bride of Christ. And baptism has this symbol to it. That all happens at the moment of your union to Christ. What Paul says here is that one of the vital ongoing sources of purification is the word of God. You don't just need to take a bath before your wedding day, right? And then never take a bath again. You keep cleaning behind your ears, keep washing the armpits, right? And the word of God is what helps you with that, to purify yourself. And what he says to the husband is, you have a responsibility then, right, to submit yourself, husbands, to this book for your own purification, and then to bring that, this book, to bear in your relationship with your wife. The gentleness and lowliness of Jesus brought to bear with your wife. The humility of Jesus brought to bear in your relationship with your wife. Self-sacrifice, Kindness, tenderness, loving, right? Those things brought to bear 
with your wife. When you address your wife, do you bring your own wisdom to the table? Right? When your wife is sad and upset or down on herself, is it, suck it up, woman, right? Or is it, remember who you are in Christ? Let me show you. Let's read it together. Jesus says you're beloved. The Bible says that that you are one with Christ, that he is making you like himself. That's what it looks like to wash your wife in the word of God. And then lastly, he says, you can't forget your one flesh, husbands. In the same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Marriage is not a competition. It's not. It's not about seeing how many of your preferences you can hang on to, how many of your desires you can hang on to, and still be friends with your wife. It's not a competition. You are the same body. Listen, husbands, idiots, right? Like all of us, you can't be a floating head. You can't. You can't disconnect yourself from your wife in some authority struggle and hope to thrive as a person. It's not set up to work that way. Decapitating your own body is moronic. And if you treat your wife in such a way that you're disconnecting yourself from her through trying to be superior or trying to win all the time, you're going to ruin things really quick. You can't disconnect yourself from your wife. That's foolishness. Do you love your wife like you love yourself? Is her success your success? Is her winning, you're winning? Is her thriving, you're thriving? Is giving room to her voice make your voice stronger, not weaker? You love your wife that way? Man, I'm not saying that from a place of condescension. Mine's sitting right there. She, she knows the truth. She knows I'm speaking to you from a place of inadequacy. But by the way, you, you ain't got time to mansplain Submission to your wife, husbands. You don't. You don't need to sit her down this week for a course in Godly Submissiveness 101. You got too much to worry about. You got to worry about self sacrificing love this week. You got to worry about pastoring your home this week, washing your wife in the Word, which means you probably need to repent of some of the stuff you've said to her this week. It didn't sound like Jesus. You've got to worry about living in such a way that it looks like one flesh, not two competing entities. Your wife, with the leading of the Holy Spirit and with godly friends around her, she, she can figure out what it means to live in a place of headship and, and submission. You ain't got time to fight that battle. 
He gives summary words in verse 33. We'll come back to verse 32. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love your wife as you love yourself. How are you doing? That's been made clear. But he brings up a new word for the women. You see, submission was conditional, if you didn't notice. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. When your husband walks out of step with Jesus, you don't have to submit to him. But Paul just gave us another word that came without any conditions, and that's respect. If I was to come down on anything today, it would be respect your husband even when he's an idiot. I didn't say agree with your husband. I didn't say obey your husband. I didn't say your husband's always right. I didn't even say like foolishly stand by your man and pretend like he's perfect. I've said respect your husband. You can disagree with your husband respectfully. You can confront your husband respectfully. Sometimes we talk to each other in a marriage ways we would never talk to anyone else on the planet. We'll throw the divorce word around like it's just some leverage for us, right? We'll talk to our husbands or our wives like they're children instead of adults. We'll belittle each other. Wives, no matter how big a knucklehead your husband is, respect him. Again, I'm not saying obey him. I'm not saying agree with him on everything. I'm saying respect him. As you disagree with him, respect him. As you push back against him, respect him. Respect your husbands. When he's not respectable, respect your husbands. Oh, that makes sense. I hope that's not taken by some husband to like get his wife. That's not how I mean it. Just be a kind person in your relationship with your husband. Our marriage, my wife and me. Our personalities, I mean, my wife is generally more passive and I'm generally more the initiator. And so it leads this to play out in some specific ways in our marriage that are unique to us and not unique to every marriage. But along the way, we've, we've done it in some healthy ways and, and we've done it not at all. I'm going to give you an example I'm so ashamed of. It's only been in the last couple years that I've recognized that my misunderstanding of this passage and my pride and my selfishness is has led me in ways to silence the voice of my wife in our marriage. To make her feel like her voice is kind of sequestered only certain times and certain places. That her contribution to the beauty of our marriage is reserved for when I'm in the right mood. When I'm ready to listen. That's sin, man. I've had to repent. Try again. Try again and try again. But let me tell you what we have gotten right. We've stayed committed to repentance from day one. That's going to be part of our marriage. Repentance. I've done most of that. Because I'm the one that's made the most mistakes. And we're committed to forgiveness. She's had to do most of that. And that we're committed to growth. 
right? That it's not over because we had a fight. That we can talk about this, regroup, repent, forgive, and try again. And God's the only reason there's been any of that in our marriage. Because of that. Don't dismiss this idea as antiquated, right? But figure out what it looks like for you and your husband. Graciously, kindly, patiently, right? For the sake of both of you and your good. But you didn't come here primarily for marital advice. And I'm not good at that anyway. What we really need is to encounter Jesus in a real and clear way. And we do. Verse 32 is the one I skipped. That's what, that's what Paul tells us. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriage is meant to show us Jesus. And where we get it wrong, Jesus doesn't get it wrong. Where we mess it up, Jesus doesn't mess it up. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the primary source of our good. He's the preeminent one and and our authority in a way that is loving and kind and for our good. Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for it on the cross. He bled out for the sake of the church. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. His blood makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven. Jesus is sanctifying us to present us without blemish and without spot. Look at this hope we have. Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. And you, all of us, were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But he is now reconciled in his, uh, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us one day holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Jesus is working on you, his bride, bathing you over and over and over again as he forgives. And he continues to stay with us for the sake of growth, cleansing us. And one day he'll present us in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb without blemish, without spot. All your sins gone forever. All your weaknesses gone forever. All your sickness gone forever. All your tears gone forever. Without blemish, without spot. The beautiful bride of Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus loves us like his own body. And and Jesus is our Savior. 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Forget about your marriage for a second. This is the marriage of most importance. And it's for everybody, even if you're single. This is the marriage of most importance right here. Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what uh, seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is your future child of God, bride of Christ, and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these... Words are true of God. 
Child of God, you are the bride of Christ. Child of God, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Child of God, one day everything will be made right inside of you and outside of you. Everything will be made right in the husbands and in the wives and in the singles and in the children and in the adults and everybody in between. And every tribe, tongue, and nation, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile will gather and worship at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And none of us will be looking at our marriages saying, man, look how great that was. They showed us Jesus. No, we'll be looking at Jesus saying, oh, how he loved us. If you're not a Christian, you're invited, and it's free. Revelation twenty two seventeen: the spirit and the bride. It means God the spirit and the bride. That's me today, the bride of Christ. And maybe if someone invited you to church today or has talked to you about Jesus, they've invited you. They say, come and let the one who hears come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You're made thirsty, and you will always be thirsty until you have your thirst quenched by Jesus, and the price is free. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be brought into union with Christ. One day you will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Real talk. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's real, and we'll be there, and we're all going to sit in our little chairs, and Jesus is going to serve us. And on that day, all the mistakes that I made in my marriage will be forgiven. And all the things I got right in my marriage will be attested only as the grace of God at work in my life. What a beautiful day that'll be. If you're not a Christian, trust Jesus today. Husbands and wives, the most important truth you can reckon in your marriage is that you're married to Christ. Right? You don't need to figure out all those practical things until you're getting that right. You're married to Christ. That matters. And then own the reality that your marriage can shine beautiful light upon that. That marriage of you to Christ. And all that practical stuff we talked about, Jesus is those things for you. You can't be that stuff for your wife. You can't be that stuff for your husband unless Jesus is those things for you. And singles, I didn't Forget about you guys either. In the kingdom, ain't nobody single, by the way. And I'll say that glibly. I know there's wounds and pain maybe associated with your singleness in this life. And I'm not glossing over that. Pretend like that's not a thing. But if you're a Christian, you are married to Christ. And that is the very most important truth that you can reckon is your marriage to Christ, and number two, own this reality. Please hear me say this as we close. Human marriage is not the only way to shine beauty on the reality of our marriage to Christ. But it is one way. It is a way that Christ is made to be beautiful. So if you have brothers and sisters who are married, which you do, support them. Pray for them. Love them. Honor their marriages. Even from your place, right? There's other places in Scripture that are going to say your singleness is a gift. It is for the kingdom. Yours is a way too. Marriage is a way. Singleness is a way. But all of it points to one way. Jesus and his marriage to his bride.
The primary meaning of marriage is the mysterious way it is supposed to make Jesus and his bride look beautiful to the world. And we can all get behind that. Father, save me from myself. Save this church from me. My words are are incomplete. My words are imperfect. If I conveyed anything today that is not of you, again, I pray just like I did at the start. I pray that it will have fallen on deaf ears. If I've conveyed anything today that will make a marriage more difficult or make a marriage more painful or make uh, a spouse try to uh, seek control or power or or uh, force in their selfishness in their marriage, I pray that that will fall on deaf ears and that you'll forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Whatever's been spoken today that is truth from you, I pray that it will rest on our hearts in a way that is, is good. It will us have a mess load of marriages in this place that, that represent the beauty of your love for the church. That show that off to the world for your glory for our good. I pray you'll be with all of us as we reckon the reality of our marriage to you, Jesus. Might we long for that day above every other day that we are in union with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. May that be a reality to us. It's the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.